Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delight Show 168. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone has a festive day. Oh, Christmas is upon us. I hope everyone's the, everyone is fine and dandy over this festive season. Whatever Allah you pray to or don't pray to, I hope you have a great time over these holidays. It again, the snow is back and it's blooming colder than the last time. But it's not going to stop us and put out a fantastic show to be quite honest. The one show before, the Meta Show, so do listen out to that Meta Show. But coming up in today's show, we have the Sofa Note final round. Phil Horwood explains who is getting through to that final round. Fact article by Morgan Saletta. His everything article is out today. Then we have this fact article again, Science News by J.J. Campanella. We have an interview with the author of this main fiction, Alan Steele. Got a little interview with Alan Steele there. Then his fiction comes up, The Emperor of Mars. And as I mentioned last week, this is really, in terms of the, the normal shows, this is the end of the month show where we've got some art and we have a stunning bit of artwork by Andreas Rocha. I tell you when you can always tell up oh, this is a good one because you get a little comment of Skeet Skeet always there in the background you know, he Skeet kind of puts the words on and the fonts on you always get a nice little email when you kind of hit the jackpot got a lovely one of Skeet regarding this artwork so do have a look at that as well I got a bio sent from Andreas and I'll read it out to you now I've been painting digitally for 13 years now I'm, most, I'm mostly self-taught and I've never considered doing it professionally it was always a hobby and I thought architecture would be the way to go 
but my love for painting endured and as my t- techniques improved I started getting job proposals I've been working freelance now for three years doing both finished illustrations matte paintings and conceptual work alongside 3D architectural pre-visualisations I currently live in Portugal with my beautiful wife and two fearful work companions a dog and a cat so I'll put a link on to Andrea's site please go over there and say hello like I say he's done some fantastic work out there and this picture he's done was just perfect Andreas, thank you so much So we're going to get kicked straight off with the nomination round. Or not the nomination round, this is the kind of nomination rounds all being finished, all closed off there now. Pop over to the front of the website on the right-hand side. That link that took you to the nomination round now takes you to the final round. And Phil's going to read out who's in these kind of final rounds. I was looking over the, the results and one or two sections didn't seem quite fair because of, of being like new categories and new new people coming onto the show so I told Phil and this is actually you know it's, I guess it's it's my bat and ball <laughs> do you know what I mean but I've granted two wild cards to Tau City Radio and everything purely because in that fact article section they've only been going two you know two months there and a lot of these results that we're getting are going to the email results or we're getting results by the emails were sent out and People might not have even known about those two fact articles. So Tau City Radio and everything has been granted wild cards by 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 me. So just to let you know that's how we're doing it. And it's purely like say purely, you know, no one's really heard of them now. It's only the, the listeners now at the moment. So once they go in, then it's fair game. Do you know what I mean? Either the win or the don't win, you know, there's only gonna be one winner. So it's just to let you know that. So over to Phil. Hi there listeners, it's Phil Horde here again to tell you about the next stage of the 2011 SofaNod Awards. The past few weeks have seen hundreds of Starship Sofa fans nominate their favourite stories, artwork, interviews and contributors for the 2011 SofaNod Awards. Now we move into the final round where we ask you to vote for your favourite items from the top nominees in each category to determine our final winners. To get you thinking about where your vote should go, let's run through the short lists of top nominees in each category. First up is Best Main Fiction, and the top nominee shortlist in alphabetical order is The Barons by F. Paul Wilson, Bigfoot and the Bodhisattva by James Morrow, Bridesicle by Will McIntosh, Lord Dickens' Declaration by Larry Santoro, The Ray Gun, A Love Story by James Allen Gardner, and Sublimation Angels by Jason Sanford. Next comes Best Narrator, and the nominees are Mike Boris, Jim Campanella, Matthew Sanborn-Smith, Larry Santoro, Ray Sizemore, and Amy H. Sturgis. Following this is the Best Fact Article Contributor, and the shortlist is composed of Rod Barnett for Film Talk, David Bradshaw for Tau City Radio, Jim Campanella for Science News, Fred Heimbaugh for The Graphic Fan, Morgan Saletta for Everything, Matthew Sanborn-Smith for Fiction Crawler, and Amy H. Sturgis for a look back at genre history. Moving on to the Best Artwork nominees, we have Chris Butler for The Island Artwork, Skeet for Starship Sofa's Volume 2 cover art, S.P. Wilson for The Ray Gunner Love Story artwork, Brian Woods for The Clapping Hands of God artwork, Ben Wooten for Bigfoot and the Bodhisattva artwork. 
Best interview or interrogation nominees are Ray Bradbury, Samuel R. Delaney, China Mirville, Fred Pohl with Jack Vance, Robert Silverberg, Jack Vance by himself, and Gene Wolfe. And up next, best show nominees are The Hugo Special, Episode 152, Lawrence Santoro, Part 1, 2 and 3, that's Episodes 111, 112 and 113, Gord Seller, Episode 162, Kim Stanley Robinson plus the Jack Vance interview in Episode 140, and Peter Watts in Episode 143. And finally, the nominees for the Honorary Award for the Most Admired SF Writer are Paolo Bajkalupi, China Mirville, James Morrow, Larry Santoro, Jack Vance and Peter Watts. Now you can cast your votes for finalists by clicking on the 2011 SofaNaut Awards button at starshipsofa.com or responding to the email invitation we're sending out to many of you. Now you can vote in this final round just once and you will need to vote for only one item in each category. It doesn't matter if you didn't take part in the nomination round of voting, your vote is still appreciated and vital. Voting will close on Sunday the 9th of January 2011, so you actually have a chance to catch up on any podcasts you may have missed. And the winners will be announced on the Starship Sofa podcast in mid-January. So thanks to everyone who has voted so far, and don't forget to cast your votes to determine our final winners. Thank you. And there you go. Now, <laughs> there, was one, there was one name there kept coming up. Do you know what I mean? He's Guys, he's there, the old fella, Larry Santoro. I'm chuffed to bits, to be quite honest. If I could, you know, one legacy there, get Larry, you know, name about in the kind of in science fiction. You know, he, he, the guy's a horror writer by trade, do you know, but wrote that cracking science fiction story, you know, so let's get his name out there. And that's just like, it's proven, you know, he's on nearly every list we've got there. Do you know what I mean? So... People love him, and that's a fantastic, you know what I mean, fantastic result. But it's all down to now the final round, and that's it. Cast your votes. We will send out some more emails if you're on the list, or come over to the front of the website. There is a link there on the right-hand side. Phil, thank you so much for this. It's just amazing putting it all together for us. Thank you so much. Next we have Morgan Saletta with his Everything Morgan. Hello and welcome to this episode of Life, the Universe and Everything. Before I begin, I'd like to just wish everyone out there a very Merry Christmas, whether you're with family or friends or far from home. And even if you're not celebrating Christmas, I hope that you have a very good holiday season. And if you haven't yet purchased a gift for that someone special, or even for yourself, let me just remind you that Starship Sofa's Stories number 2 would make a great gift. I'm a proud owner of the special signed edition myself, and I can tell you that it really does make a great read, and it would make a great gift. Once again, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all of you. With that, let's begin this episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything, entitled The Android in the Looking Glass. Let's face it, one of the main reasons I like science fiction is that it's just plain fun. I mean, epic space battles, galaxy-spanning empires, alien invasion, robot revolutions, strange and exotic people from faraway planets. It doesn't get much better than that, does it? Of course, one man's fun is another's drudgery, 
But science fiction isn't just a frivolous exercise in fantastic and speculative imagination. Well, some of it is. But at its very best, it manages not only to entertain and divert, but also to provoke serious reflection. Science fiction can hold up a mirror and forces us to reflect on ourselves, our society, our past and our future, our civilization, our planet, even our very nature as human beings. And, somewhat paradoxically, it is in this deliberately distorted mirror that we sometimes have the clearest view of ourselves. This reflective nature is not unique to science fiction. It seems perhaps inherent in art and narrative. Our gods, angels, demons, monsters, heroes, and magical practitioners, all these are others with whom we might share attributes, but whose fundamental otherness allows us to define ourselves in contrast with and in reflection of. Imagine then, if you will, a grand hall of mirrors in which are featured all these others, all these reflections of ourselves. In this hall of mirrors by which humanity is reflected on itself, science and science fiction have added three, the ape, the alien, and the android. Today, let's pause in front of the mirror marked android. What do you see when you first look into this mirror? Perhaps you see data from Star Trek, or his more comic alter ego from Red Dwarf, Crichton. Maybe you see Pris or Rachel from Blade Runner, or Bishop from Aliens, or even Maria, the android femme fatale of Metropolis. The term itself conjures up other words, and while I have deliberately used the term android, there are three closely related terms that have some overlapping meanings, robot, cyborg, and artificial intelligence. It is perhaps a good idea that we begin here by defining these terms and their relations to each other. The term android is an older term than robot. It was first used in its present meaning by Auguste Villiers-Dildadam in his work Leve Future, or Tomorrow's Eve. The term itself comes from the Greek meaning having the form of a man. An android is thus a machine or artificially created organism, as with Philip K. Dick's replicants, that mimics or resembles a human being. A robot is more generally a term for a mechanical being of any form. Thus, we have robot fish, robot insects, robo-dogs, and so on. The term was coined by the Czech playwright Karel Kapek in his 1921 play, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, and is a variant of the Czech word for work. Incidentally, the play features a robot revolution that ends in the extermination of human beings. I hope to cover the rise of the robots theme in a later episode. The term cyborg, or cybernetic organism, refers to a partially artificial and partly organic being, as with Mishimun Shiro's well-loved characters from the manga and film adaptations of Ghost in the Shell and Appleseed. The term was first coined in 1960 by Manfred Kleins and Nathaniel Klein to refer to their idea of artificially augmented human beings who would carry out space exploration. The idea of artificial intelligence is much more general. While robots and androids are, of course, artificially intelligent, AIs in science fiction also include the nebulous Skynet of the Terminator franchise and the almost godlike and whimsically named minds governing the orbitals and starships of Ian M. Banks' culture series. Of course, in actual fact, scientists and engineers are still struggling to produce an AI that can mimic an ant, let alone a human being. And we are still nowhere near a machine being able to pass the Turing test as proposed by Alan Turing in 1950, in which, basically, a machine tricks a human interrogator, via typed questions and answers, into thinking it is a human being. But let us now return to androids and our hall of mirrors. It is not only in science fiction that androids or human-like machines find a fascinated public, 
Nor is it only in science fiction that they are deliberately used as mirrors for reflecting on human nature. Mythology is full of stories of mechanical or artificial human-like beings, from the giant Talos of Cretan and Greek mythology to the golem of medieval Jewish folklore. And some complex clockwork automata were developed by ancient Greek inventors such as Hero of Alexandria in the first century A.D. In September of this year, I had an opportunity to see a reproduction of the Antikythera mechanism, a remarkably complex astronomical calculator built sometime in the second century A.D. and thought to have come from Rhodes. The machine makes it easy indeed to believe the ancient Olympian ode of Pindor, according to which... The animated figures stand, adorning every public street, and seem to breathe in stone, or move their marble feet. In the 13th century, the famous Arabic astronomer and mathematician Al-Jazari described the building of a number of programmable automata, including humanoid musicians, in his Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices. In Western Europe, the creation of mechanical beings has fascinated tinkerers, inventors, and engineers since at least the 1400s, when Leonardo da Vinci first sketched his design for a humanoid automaton, of which working models have since been built. More famous are the 18th century automatons of Jacques de Vaucanson, whose mechanical flute player fascinated his fellow Europeans. More importantly, it is around this time that European scientists and philosophers began to view not only the universe, but living beings in mechanistic terms. This posed problems for many, such as the philosopher René Descartes, who, although manifestly mechanistic in his approach to animals and even the human body, refused to entertain the idea that the human mind, or soul, could be explained in these terms. Descartes was a dualist for whom the mental world was produced by a kind of substance, which allowed him to keep the church's conception of a soul. Whether dualist or not, the debate over whether the phenomenon of mind can or cannot be reduced to its constituent parts is a lively one, and there are many examples in science fiction, of which one of my favorites is the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man, in which the cyberneticist Bruce Maddox orders Data to submit to disassembly so Maddox can better understand and reproduce him. Even if you are not a Star Trek fan, this is one episode you must watch. But let us return briefly to Descartes. In a marvelous passage that foreshadows the Turing test of which I spoke earlier, Descartes writes, If there were machines which bore resemblance to our bodies and imitated our actions as closely as possible for all practical purposes, we should still have two very certain means of recognizing that they were not real men. The first is that they could never use words or put together signs as we do in order to declare our thoughts to others. For we can certainly conceive of a machine so constructed that it utters words so as to give an appropriately meaningful answer to whatever is said in its presence, as the dullest of men can do. Secondly, even though some machines might do some things as well as we do them, or perhaps even better, they would inevitably fail in others, which would reveal that they are acting, not from understanding, but only from the disposition of their organs. For, whereas reason is a universal instrument, which can be used in all kinds of situations, these organs need some particular action. Hence, it is for all practical purposes impossible for a machine to have enough organs to make it act in all the contingencies of life in a way in which our reason makes us act. Of course, as I mentioned before, the jury is still out as to whether we will be able to create machines capable of imitating or even surpassing human intelligence. But such machines do exist in science fiction, and of all science fiction works, it is probably Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Ridley Scott's film adaptation Blade Runner, which most famously address what it means to be human 
in a world inhabited by intelligent but artificial beings. Most interestingly, Dick does not use intelligence as his measure of humanity, but rather empathy, our ability to feel emotions and identify with other living beings. It is lack of empathy which defines the replicant androids and makes them soulless. Equally, the act of giving them emotions is seen as a supremely dangerous and godlike act. Dick's androids would easily pass a Turing test, but, as with Descartes' imagined humanoid machines, Dick's androids still fail to imitate us in a thoroughly convincing manner. They cannot pass the Voigt-Kampf test. Everyone who has seen Blade Runner remembers this scene, which I include here under fair use copyright practice. Next subject, Kowalski Leon. Engineer Waste Disposal. File section, new employee, six days. Calling Mr. Weber. Please Come in. Sector. Level 9. We have a B1 security Stand by for ID checks. Sit down. Care if I talk? You're kind of nervous when I take tests. Oh, just please don't move. Oh, sorry. I already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I've ever had the one Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Now answer as quickly as you can. Sure. 1187 Hunter Varser. That's the hotel. What? Where I live. Nice place? Yeah, sure, I guess. Is that part of the test? No. Just warming you up, that's all. Huh. It's not fancy or anything. You're in a desert. Walking along in the sand when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look... What one? What? What desert? Doesn't make any difference. What desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? You know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. Never seen a turtle. But I understand what you mean. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back, Leon. Do you make up these questions, Mr. Holden? Or do they write them down for you? The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean, I'm not helping? I mean, you're not helping. Why is that, Leon? Just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. Shall we continue? Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind. About your mother? A mother? Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother. Brilliant. What a great movie. But of course it is the subject of Rachel, who has artificially implanted memories, who proves so problematic to Deckard. And it is Roy, whose unlooked-for mercy shows him what humanity is, and, in his dying, what life is. And so, my friends, we come to the end of this episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. We have faced the android in the looking glass, and, with a bit of help from philosophy and science fiction, we have seen ourselves. Once again, I'd like to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday Season.
This is Morgan Saletta signing out. There you go. Morgan, thank you so much. And I hope you don't mind me shoving you through there on a wild card. You and Tau City Radio, David Bradshaw. You certainly deserve it. Honestly, that's a fantastic little article. Thank you so much. Next up, we have another fact article. Mr. JJ Campanella with his December science news. Jim Squire. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this December 2010 science news update. I'm your host for this evening's science wonders, Jim Campanella. Every few months or so, I get enough requests from listeners to be able to do an all-request episode. So, yes, this is it. My Christmas present to you guys, listener-requested stories. Let's get going. The first story of the night has been in the news for the last couple of weeks, and normally because it has been done to death by both the science and non-science media, I would completely ignore it. Yes, I happen to be one of those people who loathe going along with the crowd, However, I have had several listeners who have requested I comment on the new arsenic-based bacteria that was discovered recently. Well, let me add my two cents to the many gold pieces that have already been strewn out there. If you've been living on the planet Zorcon for the last several weeks and missed this story, let me tell you about it. Dr. Felisa Wolf-Simon and her colleagues from the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the U.S. Geological Survey published a paper a couple of weeks ago in the journal Science describing a new bacteria that they had isolated that is unlike anything else on the face of the Earth. GFAJ1 was isolated from Mono Lake in eastern California. Mono Lake is a hypersaline alkaline water body with high dissolved arsenic concentrations, uh, upwards of 200 micromolar, which is quite a bit of arsenic, with a pH of about 9. You don't expect anything to be living there because, well, there's a massive amount of salt. The pH is 9. And the amount of arsenic in there is so high, it makes the Dead Sea look like the Great Barrier Reef in terms of the amount of life present. Now, biologists have had bacteria for years that can live in salt concentrations 100 times or more that of the ocean, high enough to be deadly to anything else. We call that category of bacteria halophiles because they love salt and can only live there. In general, we call these types of way-out strains extremophiles, meaning that they live under extreme conditions that nothing else can live under. At any rate, such bacterial extremophiles have been on the radar for the last several decades. What makes this new one so special? Well, GFAJ is special because it not only lives in extreme conditions, but it has completely altered its biochemistry to live under those conditions. When I say completely, I mean completely. Every other known organism on the face of the earth uses phosphorus to do lots of important biochemical jobs. First and most important is that phosphorus is absolutely essential in making DNA. Not to get too far into it, but the bases in the DNA, which are the most famous part, GATC, are held together in the DNA strand structurally by a bunch of sugars called deoxyribose. These sugars themselves are held to one another by phosphates creating one long chain. That has pretty much been an inviolable law of biology since we discovered it in the early 50s. GFAJ does not follow that inviolable law. It does not use phosphate because it is so scarce in Mono Lake. Instead, it uses arsenic, which to everything else is a deadly poison. Now, if you look at the periodic table, you will notice that phosphorus is right above arsenic in the same column. That means that at least chemically they have the same number of bonding sites and can be exchanged for one another. 
If you remember the original Star Trek episode, Devil in the Dark, Kirk and company come across an organism that is based on silicon instead of carbon like Earth life. Again, that is theoretically possible because carbon and silicon are in the same column next to each other in the periodic table, and they have the same number of potential bonds. Carbon is such a good basis for life because it can make long, complex chains that can do all sorts of biological jobs. Silicon can make equally complex chains. Just ask any geologist and they will tell you that silicates are some of the most ubiquitous and complex rock molecules on the face of the Earth. Anyway, GFAJ has completely replaced phosphorus for a deadly poison, and its DNA is arsenated, not phosphorylated. What are the implications of this? Well, first, the most obvious implication is that it expands our view of what is possible. We had a much more narrow definition of life before, but now we can see that life may exist in conditions that we had not previously anticipated, like a place with no phosphates. Obviously, lots of people are thrilled because it bolsters the possibility of life on other planets. The second implication is that the entire biochemistry of GFAJ is going to be asked backwards from anything we've ever seen. Phosphorus is not just used in making DNA. It's used in making ATP, adenosine triphosphate. That is like the dollar or the euro in terms of energy currency in a cell. Presumably, GFAJ does not make ATP because... It makes ATA, adenosine triarsenate. That completely blows my mind and opens up a whole new area of biochemical study just by itself. It's not just molecules like ATP which are modified, but a whole series of others, especially in the energetic pathways of this thing. The third implication is that every other organism on the face of the Earth uses phosphorylation as part of signaling pathways, that is, turning proteins on and off after they are made, this has pretty much been universal as far as a system of post-translational, that is, protein, regulation. Well, all bets are off with GFAJ because there is no phosphorus available, presumably. It arsenates proteins as a post-translational modification. Now, I'm guessing this. It hasn't been shown yet. But again, this would be different from anything known. And it does follow. It makes sense. I mean, if the phosphorus isn't there, it would have to do this. The next implication is my favorite since it is so bizarre from reading the paper in Science. It is not even clear if the researchers tested this or not. Arsenic is poisonous to every other form of life on Earth except GFAJ because it competes with phosphorus. Since phosphorus plays a major role in energy production of cells, that means that cells die when arsenic replaces phosphorus. The corollary to that idea should be that GAFJ does not use phosphorus and uses arsenic, so... Phosphorus should be toxic to GAFJ. That makes sense. Phosphorus would compete with arsenic and replace it. Again, creating a toxic situation. But creating the mere image of that situation for every other organism that we know of. It's almost disturbing. Number five, you would think that a bacteria like this kind comes from out of nowhere and can't be related to anything else on the face of the earth. But that's not the case. The paper generates a beautiful family tree for GFJ based on its DNA sequence and comparing it to other bacteria. The family tree clearly shows that GFAJ is an extremophile, which is closely related to halobacteria. That makes sense since this new bacteria, in addition to being so strange in its use of arsenic, also is a halophile, since Mono Lake has such a high salt concentration. It is, however, unclear from the simple phylogenetic tree that I saw, whether GFAJ is an antecedent of 
those other normal Halo files or descendant of them. This is cool, but some scientists have been quick, too quick in my opinion, to suggest that perhaps early life was based on arsenic and not phosphorus because phosphorus was rare in the beginning. But there is little or no evidence for that, especially since they came up with the hypothesis several weeks ago for the first time. The final upshot implication of all of this is that an army of biochemists, physiologists, molecular biologists, and microbiologists will be able to make their careers on just the study of this new and amazing bacteria. Why? Well, because it breaks all the rules that have already been set up. We don't have to quite start from scratch with GFAJ since we have more than a century of hard biochemical understanding of standard Terran biology behind us. It's not like this thing is from Mars. But it will take years to fill in the gaps and try to figure out all the new rules that it functions under. Let me just finish this segment with a caveat. All the stuff that I just told you may be complete nonsense. There's already a controversy brewing suggesting that all this arsenic stuff is just bad science. Several biologists have pointed out that the selection process for the bacteria is flawed. I didn't mention this, but in order to isolate any bacteria to purity, you have to go through a selection and enrichment process. Well, some people have pointed out that the process in this case included phosphorus. In other words, phosphorus was fed to GAFJ and didn't appear to poison it. In fact, the bacteria seems to use it physiologically. It may be that arsenic is only a backup plan for the organism and not a primary pathway, which would invalidate many of the conclusions being drawn. Also, there are no chemical structures yet showing without doubt evidence that only arsenic is in the DNA, etc., of this organism. At this point, we are all just hoping that this discovery does not go the way of cold fusion and simply disappear. The second story of the night was a request from Jesse Willis, editor of the very fine science fiction and fantasy audio website. Given all the doom and gloom I have professed about plastics and store receipts for the last few months, Jesse wanted to know what the latest info was on the safety of sucralose, the sweetener better known by its market name of Splenda. Well, first, let me point out that for a percentage of the population, Splenda is not that fantastic. In about 35 to 40 percent of people who ingest sucralose in large amounts, there is the major drawback that it causes severe intestinal gas, intestinal distress, and diarrhea. Since such sufferers are in the minority and it is not a deadly effect, the FDA does not even bother with a warning label on sugar-free ice cream or drinks, or whatever is flavored with your sucralose. But does Splenda have any serious and long-term health problems associated with it? Well, apparently it's fairly safe. And no, I'm not just making that statement cavalierly. There are several recent papers that actually support that point of view. First is a paper in the July 2010 issue of the journal Food and Chemical Toxicity. It was written by a disparate group of researchers from industry and academia. The PI seems to be someone named Dr. Brusick from a company called Toxicology Consultants in, and I swear this is true, Bumpus, Virginia. The title of the paper is The Absence of Genotoxicity of Sucralose. That means they were trying to determine whether Splenda causes cancer or at the very least, genetic mutations. So what did they find? Their myriad studies included the Ames Reverse Mutation Test. This is a standard test to determine how often a mutated bacteria 
remutates back to normal when treated with a test compound and a control compound. In this case, the control and Splenda showed no statistical differences in inducing mutations. Because you cannot trust experiments done with bacteria when you're worried about higher organisms, they also did a reverse mutation test with mouse lymphoma cells in which they pretty much did the same thing as with the bacterial cells. They tested to see how often reverse mutations occurred in the mouse cells. Again, the results were negative. They also tested for in vitro chromosome damage in human lymphocytes, and again, this was done in culture with live cells but not in whole animals. And again, the results were negative, no damage to DNA with Splenda above normal background. Finally, to be complete, they did an in vivo chromosome aberration test in rats and mice. And again, all the results were evaluated as negative. In all, these results support the overall conclusion already made by regulatory and health agencies that sucralose is safe for its intended use. A second 2010 paper from the International Journal of Morphology suggests that Splenda may not be quite so safe for expectant mothers. Dr. Adamir Rodeo and company from the School of Medicine at San Jose de Rio Preto, Brazil, wrote an article entitled Effects of Sucralose Ingestion on Fetal and Placental Weights and Umbilical Cord Length. Very straightforwardly, since very few fetal studies had been done on Splenda, Rodeo decided to estimate the fetal and placental weights and umbilical cord length in fetuses from pregnant female rats after ingestion and non-ingestion of sucralose. In the treated group, five pregnant female rats, sucralose was administered uh, at a dose of about 30 milligrams per kilogram per day from the 10th to 14th day of pregnancy. In the control group, same number of female rats, saline solution was administered at the same dose and by the same route. On the 20th day of gestation, both groups were sacrificed for weighing of the fetuses and placentas and measurement of umbilical cord length. The mean values of fetal weight and umbilical cord length of the treated group were statistically lower than controls. However, placental weight did not differ statistically between the treated and control groups. It can be concluded from that work that sucralose ingestion of 30 milligrams per kilogram per day from days 10 to 14 in pregnancy diminished fetal weight and umbilical cord length which suggests that it must be getting across the placental membrane. Okay, so that is not such a great result for pregnant women trying to watch their diets with Splenda. But on the other hand, we're talking about rats here, not humans. More on that a little later. One last Splenda story. Many neurobiologists in the last couple of years have started to question the use of any artificial sweeteners in human diets. Most recently, in the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, Neuroscientist Dr. King Yang of Yale University makes a pretty strong case that artificial sweeteners have actually been making the world fatter. Yang shows a clear statistical rise in the percentage of the population who are obese, and that rise coincides exactly with an increase in the widespread use of non-caloric artificial sweeteners, such as aspartame in Diet Coke or sucralose in Pepsi One. Yang examines the development of artificial sweeteners in a historic context, he then summarizes the epidemiological and experimental evidence concerning their effects on weight. And finally, he attempts to explain those effects in light of neurobiology, a food reward. Historically, Yang is in good company going all the way back to the 1980s. The big study that was done then was the San Antonio Heart Study. It examined 3,682 adults over a seven- to eight-year period in the 1980s. When matched for initial body mass index, 
gender, ethnicity, and diet, drinkers of artificially sweetened beverages consistently had higher BMIs at the follow-up, with dose dependence on the amount of consumption. So what does Yang conclude? Yang says that increasing evidence suggests that artificial sweeteners do not activate the neural food reward pathways of the brain in the same fashion as natural sweeteners. Lack of caloric contribution generally eliminates what he calls the post-ingestive component, which is basically turning on any kind of satiation in the brain after eating. Functional magnetic imaging of the brain in normal weight men showed that glucose ingestion resulted in a prolonged signal depression in the hypothalamus. That is presumably what leads to satiation and a stoppage in eating. Yang found that that response was not observed when sucralose was ingested. I guess the upshot is, is that no matter what artificial sweetener you're eating and whether it does appear to be safe, we need to be very careful with how we employ those foods. I want to close this section with a story about rats and sweeteners. You may not know this story. I'm not sure that many people know it. In fact, a good friend of mine who teaches high school biology and is quite well informed was surprised when I told this to her. It is the saccharin story. Saccharin is the oldest artificial sweetener and was discovered by Constantine Fallberg at Johns Hopkins University in 1879 while he was working on coal tar derivatives. Mmm, yum, yum. Decades after its debut, saccharin remained a specialty product for diabetics on store shelves. A sugar shortage during World War II and a shift in aesthetics toward favoring a thin figure encouraged women to turn to artificial substitutes as well. Around that time, the wording on diet soda bottles was subtly changed from, quote, for use only in people who must limit sugar intake, unquote, to, quote, for use in people who wish to limit sugar intake, unquote. In 1969, saccharin was found to cause bladder cancer in rats. In the typical government fashion, it took the FDA another eight years to announce its intention to ban saccharin in 1977. Amazingly, avid consumers protested. That led to the U.S. Congress ordering the FDA not to enforce the final ban. A warning label, like we have on cigarettes nowadays, was nonetheless required on all saccharin products. It was finally found in the 1990s that bladder cancer associated with saccharin ingestion was specific to rodent physiology. Humans could not get it. So saccharin, despite being unsafe for rats and mice, was safe for humans. The saccharin warning label was removed in 2000, and lots of people never even noticed the warning label was removed, including my friend, the high school teacher. <sighs> What's the moral to the story? Be very careful when listening to what science has to say about artificial food. Just because it appears to be safe, it may not be. And just because it appears to be dangerous, it may not be. We just have to take things with a grain of salt and wait long enough to see how safe they really are. Food safety, in some sense, is a waiting game. You wait long enough, and the true story finally comes out. The next story was pointed out to me by Tom Allerts. Again, forgive my pronunciation of your name, Tom. I'm hoping that since you didn't correct me after last month, I guess I can't be too far off. Tom pointed out an amazing story about the apparent rediscovery of some pretty well-known science by a group of physicians. First of all, let me tell you, I've been teaching pre-meds going on 15 years now, and I hate to generalize, but too many of them have the same mental traits, especially the successful ones. And unfortunately, 
the way that most college teaching is done does not help them break their bad habits. What bad habits am I talking about? Well, the worst of those habits is a tendency to be very short-sighted when it comes to studying for exams and actually learning information. An example, I remember that one of my very best students ever, who did go on to medical school, aced my cell and molecular biology class. He easily got an A in it. He then took the following semester my genetics class. I remember asking him a simple molecular biology question in class, that genetics class, having to do with material he had learned the semester before. Now, we are talking two months previously, and he had gotten like a 97 or something on the exam covering the same topic. But he gave me a blank stare as if he had never heard of any such thing before. What am I getting at? I will be blunt. Pre-meds, even the very smart ones, study for an exam, cram all that material into their short-term memory, and then it is gone. If it was not actually gone, they would not spend thousands of dollars on Kaplan-type courses that teach them how to take the U.S. medical school entrance exams and basically reteach themselves all the material they should have learned originally in their first few years of chemistry and biology classes. That, by the way, is why the undergrad pre-meds generally fear me and avoid my classes. I test concepts and understanding in my exams, not just rote memorization, which they have been programmed to employ over the years. So what does this have to do with Tom's story? Tom pointed me to a blog story by the Flip Tomato, quote-unquote, who is a postgraduate expatriate physics student. The tomato had a link to a journal story that had me laughing until I almost fell down. I think my wife thought I was having a seizure until I told her the story. My wife was a math major in college, so she laughed almost as much as I did when I told her. What is the story? It was published in a recent issue of the journal Diabetes Care and entitled, quote, A Mathematical Model for the Determination of Total Area Under Glucose Tolerance and Other Metabolic Curves, unquote. At this point, before I go any farther, any math person should be making Scooby-Doo noises like, hmm? The story was written by Dr. M.M. Tai, M.D. of St. Luke's Hospital in New York City. And here is the objective statement from the paper by old Doc Tai. Quote, To develop a mathematical model for the determination of total areas under curves from various metabolic studies. In Tai's model, the total area under a curve is computed by dividing the area under the curve between two designated values on the x-axis into small segments, rectangles and triangles, whose areas can be accurately calculated from their respective geometrical formulas. Unquote. Okay, if you took lots of science in high school and college, you have probably already picked up on the horror that is Tai's model. I can barely say Ty's model, by the way, without laughing aloud. For those of you who are not forced to take too much math, let me just be blunt. Dr. Ty has rediscovered calculus. Calculus was discovered independently by Isaac Newton and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz back in the late 1600s, so it has been around a hell of a long time. As Flip Tomato, the physicist, points out, Ty has more specifically rediscovered the trapezoidal rule for approximating the integral, which is how you determine the area under any curve. Ty concludes his paper with, quote, Ty's model proves to be able to, one, determine total area under a curve with precision, two, calculate area with varied shapes that may or may not intercept on one or both x-y axis, 
Three, estimate total area under a curve plotted against varied time intervals, whereas other formulas only allow the same interval. And four, compare total areas of metabolic curves produced by different studies. Unquote. To top off the story, other medical journal articles have already referenced Ty's paper 75 times. That means there are at least 75 other doctors who have forgotten the calculus that they were forced to learn as pre-meds. Why do I find this no surprise at all? Now do you see why I have gained my heart and reputation and why I'm so difficult on pre-meds? I actually want them to learn and remember the material I teach them. Whatever university that Dr. Tai went to as an undergraduate student should consider taking back his liberal arts degree. But hey, let's not forget, he is obviously a very smart guy. After all, he rediscovered an entire branch of mathematics. And how many people can say that? The final story of the night was suggested by one of my own graduate students and an avid listener, C.J. Urso. He suggested that I look into any real astronomy or astrogeology stories dealing with the end of the world predicted to occur in 2012. I have to admit, when I heard this request, all I could think about was that lousy movie from last year, yes, the Epinomus 2012. It was simply horrible, with no basis in any form of scientific reality that I can think of. As BBC movie reviewer Mark Kermode put it, quote, Roland Emmerich's 2012 is like apocalyptic porn. It revels in destruction, unquote. 2012 was supposed to bring the sun into the final position of its 26,000-year cycle to line up directly between the Earth and the center of the galaxy. No one knows the perils that will manifest at that moment. But one thing is known. It will occur in 2012. We can't really say how it'll affect us. The lineup may affect gravity, which will in turn affect ocean tides. The lineup could affect the magnetosphere by weakening it or even reversing its polarity. Or even it could cause the production of solar flares. That's another concern that could grow out of excessive gravity wells. Is any of this likely? That's first. And second, how in the heck would ancient minds predict this? Is moving past the ecliptic and lining up with that black hole at the center of our galaxy going to destroy the Earth? Not bloody likely, in my opinion, and apparently it's not just my opinion. I did a long and extensive search on several different scientific journal databases, and could not find one, not one, serious scientist who was addressing this as a grave issue as far as writing serious journal articles. What does that tell you? To me, it says that if the end is coming, that it will be one hell of a surprise to most of the scientists on the planet who are not crackpots, nutcases, or charlatans trying to make a fast buck by selling schlock science books to the public. All right, let's make this clear. Earth will not pass the galactic ecliptic in 2012. The solar system passes through the ecliptic every 30 million years. Dr. John Bacall of Princeton published an article in 1985 in Nature that explained in very clear mathematical analysis that the movement of the sun is perpendicular to the galactic plane and it takes a very long time to pass that plane. And the last time that we went through it was 3 million years ago. That means that the Earth is moving away from the galactic plane and won't be due to cross it for another 30 million years. In addition, the margin of error in these calculations is at least 2.1 parsecs, or about 6.5 light years. 
So that supposed alignment that people are talking about, that is never going to happen. A more recent article in 2007 in the journal Astrophysics by Dr. Yogesh Joshi of Queen's University in Belfast again calculated the displacement of the sun from the galactic plane and found the very same result as the article from 1985. So how did the crazies come to their conclusions? Well, it seems to be a serious misinterpretation over what exactly is happening in 2012 from an astronomic standpoint. The event that will take place in 2012 is only significant from the Earth's point of view. The precession cycle, or the 26,000-year wobble of the Earth, only causes the effect of the stars changing positions on the horizon, and therefore on the effect of galactic alignment. If you were viewing this precession from anywhere else in the solar system, it would be completely and totally insignificant. There's no gravitational force or radiation to be expected from this event, because other than the tilt of the Earth, nothing will be any different than the last few thousand solstices. And as such, Earth will be no closer to the galactic center than any other solstice. In fact, it will be farther away from the galactic center than the Mayans were at that time. Then there are the theories that there is a hidden planet X out there that will come into alignment with the Earth in December 2012. Again, this is just plain nonsense. Several hundred years of astronomic observation in our solar system has demonstrated no hidden planets. A hidden planet here would be even more obvious than an exoplanet 30 light years away. Imagine the interplanetary wobble it would induce even with a massive orbit. What about pole reversal? Would it be catastrophic? Well, magnetic shifts in the poles do take place. Both magnetic pole shifts and physical pole shifts do take place. And in fact, we're in the middle of a long process of magnetic pole shifting, the biggest effect of which is that we're going to have to realign our compasses in a few hundred years. Here's an excerpt from an article from NASA. Quote, Reversals take a few thousand years to complete, and during that time, contrary to popular belief, the magnetic fields do not vanish. It just gets more complicated. Magnetic lines of force near the Earth's surface become twisted and tangled, and magnetic poles pop up in unaccustomed places. A south magnetic pole might emerge over Africa, for instance, or a north magnetic pole over Tahiti. It's strange, but it's still a planetary magnetic field, and it still protects us from space radiation and solar storms." Unquote. The other kind of pole shift is a physical pole shift. Now, this would require a tremendous amount of energy to induce, and that is not part of any cycle or natural occurrence, and no increasing of solar energy could be cause for it. We've actually had a few degree shifts of the poles in the past, but not a reversal by any means. Dr. William Sager of Texas A&M says, quote, Our data set indicates that physical pole shifts take place at a rate between 5 and 10 degrees per every million years. Essentially, it happens within the blink of an eye in terms of geological time, unquote. What this is saying is those crazies who call this event fast, call 5 to 10 million years fast, and are predicting a specific date for this to happen, are just plain ridiculous. And that the Mayans had anything to do with predicting this is just plain absurd. Now, I could be wrong about this, but I guess only time will tell. Let's see if there is a January 2013 issue of Science News. Check back here in two years and we'll know if the world has ended or not.
By the way, the announcement has come out for a 2012 sequel, I swear to God. Again, directed by Roland Emmerich. I can't wait to see that one. I mean, what exactly do you do as far as a plot is concerned about the time after the end of the world? Anyway, that's all for me from now. As always, take care. Don't drink Pepsi One if you're pregnant. Keep an eye out for Planet X. Merry Christmas, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, honestly, what can I say? Thank you so much. You've just stuck with Starships over so long now, and it's so appreciated. Honestly, thank you. You have a very Merry Christmas, sir. Next up is Main Fiction. On Just before the Main Fiction, we've got a little interview with Alan Steele. I recorded this about a month ago now because I've discovered Alan Steele and I delved into all his Coyote novels and I just loved them. Do you know what I mean? I was getting kind of ranting and raving about them. They're fantastic. And I just had, it was really nice for me just to have a, a chat with Alan Steele as well. So I'll play Alan Steele interview, then we'll go straight into the main fiction. The main fiction is narrated by Nathan Lowell. Nathan, as you remember, I had Nathan on the show. He did the little interview and was the narrator for the Tad Williams story the 10th muse i'll put a link on to nathan's site do go over there and say hello to nathan he just came over as a, a narrator you know what i mean offered his offered his jobs and his wares and what a fantastic narrator is nathan thank you so much sir i'll give you a little heads up about alan Steele before we get into the interview alan Steele became a full-time science fiction writer in 1988 since then he has become a prolific author including novels short stories and essays his works appeared all over the globe, including England, France, Germany, Poland, the Czech Republic, Spain, Italy. He's now got many novels to his name, including Orbital Decay, Clark County, Space, Lunar Descent, Labyrinth of the Night. He's also the best-selling author of the Coyote Trilogy, which includes Coyote, Coyote Horizon, and Coyote Frontier. He's also penned the Coyote Chronicles, which includes Coyote Horizon, Coyote Destiny, Spindrift, Galaxy Blues, and the forthcoming Hex. He's published five collections of short fiction, including Rude Astronauts, all-American Alien Boy, Sex and Violence in Zero-G, American Beauty, and The Last Science Fiction Writer. In 1996, his novella, The Death of Captain Future, won the Hugo Award. He has also won a Hugo Award for Where Angels Fear to Tread, that also won the Locust Award, the Asimov Readers Award, and the Science Fiction Chronicle Readers Award in 1998. And it was also nominated for the Nebula and the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award. And I've always wanted to ask, Alan, why science fiction? Well, it's what I've been reading all my life. There's, uh, uh, there's never any question in my mind when I started writing that I was going to do science fiction. I, I started uh, reading it when I was in third grade. One of my older sisters gave me Rocket Ship Galileo by Robert Heinlein while I was recuperating from a, uh, an auto accident I was in. And that pretty much hooked me. And then about a couple of years later, a teacher of mine assigned the class to write little short stories based on pictures that she was handing out. And the picture that she gave me was clipped from some magazine, and it showed this family in a flying car. 
And so I, I wrote a short story based on that and discovered that, gee, I kind of like doing this. And not only that, but it was it came out sort of like the things that I had been reading a lot of. So I continued writing short stories as a hobby, which is kind of an odd hobby for a kid to have, I suppose, until I was about 15 years old. And around then I decided, you know, I think I want to do this for the rest of my life. What was your childhood like? I had, a, had an interesting childhood. I grew up in the 60s. So there was a lot going on in, in that particular time that if you were paying attention to things, you could really you know, get your teeth into a lot of different things. I mean, culturally, uh, I, mean, I mentioned science fiction. That was a great time for SF. There was a lot of good stories that were out there and a lot of good novels, and, and they were cheap. I mean, it was... You could you could pick up paperbacks for you know fifty cents each. You could get a you know a new science fiction magazine deal for about you know thirty forty cents, and they were all over the place. Television was great. I mean, I, I saw Star Trek in its original run. I saw The Prisoner when it was a a, a replacement series on the summer. I saw Two Thousand and One during its first theatrical run. And then culturally, there was a lot that was going on, of course. I mean, it was a, a time of real change. You know, the Vietnam War was happening. We had, you know, just some of the darker things that we had presidential assassinations. I, I, you know, I vividly remember the Kennedy assassination. We had the whole civil rights movement. And I was a kind of growing up in Tennessee, I was a kind of at ground zero for that. It wasn't a distant thing at, at all for me. And then there was also a lot of uh, uh, technological change. We were in the middle of the moon race, and I was a space buff uh, from the beginning. So I followed the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo missions very avidly. And then there was all these other things that were coming online, computers. We had the beginning of the, of the cybernetic age. My father's office was... Uh, he he worked in an insurance company in Tennessee that was the first in the country to have computer uh, billing services. And they had this big, massive computer in the office that I was able to go visit. And I'd look, look in and watch these guys operating this thing. So there was, there was a lot to keep your eyes open, to, to, to open your eyes, to, to keep your interest. And, and, uh, and I was an inquisitive kid. The 60s was a neat time to be growing up. You see, you've always wanted to write science fiction. Has there ever been the inclined to, to really try a different genre as well? You know, maybe the mystery or the horror side of writing? Well, one time, I, one story that I uh, uh, published some years ago in a small press magazine called Pirate Writings made it into Best American Mystery Stories, and I'm very proud of that. That, you know, I had a story that passed mustard where with uh, Robert B. Parker and uh, Otto Penzler, the editors. My very first attempt at a novel, uh, which was never published, thankfully it was awful, uh, was a, uh, a mainstream thriller. But on the other hand, uh, I've been writing SF now for about 22 years, and I've had a great time doing it. So, you know, every time that I think, ah, oh, maybe I should go do something else, I seem to have a, you know, the next science fiction story is in front of me. I read somewhere that you were a journalist at one time. Did 
being a journalist not satisfy your writing urge? Uh, it it did and it didn't. Journalism was something that I, I'm very glad that I did. Uh, I, I, I went into journalism as a way of paying my bills. My mentor in college was a, a very fine novelist, Russell Banks, and he advised me as I was getting out of school that I was probably not going to be able to make it as a, a freelance fiction writer and that I should find some other way of paying the bills and uh, and, and, and still write. Uh, to, to make a long story short, I went into journalism and worked for uh, first uh, a uh, alternative weekly newspaper in Worcester, Massachusetts, and also for its sister business publication, and and for a little while went freelance. Journalism was something that taught me a lot of discipline. It taught me the essentials of research. It uh, it it showed me uh, how to you know really hook the reader and get into a story very quickly and so forth. But the problem there there is well one thing was that I was overworked there for a while. It was you know sometimes sixty hours a week working on the paper, and. It also, there's, there's things that you just can't do in journalism that you can do in fiction. Fiction allows you to work at a problem or, or work at a theme at a way that, that straight journalism or nonfiction doesn't allow you to do. So ultimately, I finally went back into fiction writing and, and, and left journalism behind. Was it a, a big Decision to make to you know leave the steady wage of the journalism to go freelance. Oh yeah, it was a, it was a big step. I, uh, I I was leaving you know a steady paycheck uh, once every two weeks to sort of take this plunge into being a freelancer, where you know you you sometimes have to wait months before you're paid for something. Uh, and uh, I I did it after I'd. Sold my 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 second novel really it was about my first published book uh, Orbital Decay, and uh, when I learned that the, that uh, Ace Books my publisher wanted this particular book, and they weren't paying me very much at all I had a, like a rock bottom advance of three thousand dollars, but at that time that was enough to, to 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 settle all my debts in the world and then give me a little bit of pocket money. Went to my wife and said, look. Let me try this for a year or so, and I'll go out there and freelance. And if we're starving at the end of 12 months, I'll go get another newspaper job. And, and thankfully, she said, yeah, okay, go ahead and do this. So I went out and uh, I, I worked freelance for a number of, of uh, news magazines for a while while continuing to write science fiction. And uh, at the end of the year, I looked at uh, my bank account and so forth and realized to my surprise, that I had made slightly more money as a freelancer than I had as a salaried newspaper writer. So after that, I said, well, the choice is obvious. So I've just continued working as a, as a freelancer and haven't had, to, haven't had to go get a straight job since then. You write novels and short stories. Have you got a, a true passion for one of those I really don't have a preference. When I'm, when I'm into writing novels, I'm really heavily into writing the novel. You know, last year I had finished a, uh, I finished a novel. Uh, in fact, I had finished Coyote Destiny. 
And I had a lot of short story ideas kind of socked away that I hadn't done anything with. So I sat down and began to write those things, including The Emperor of Mars. And that took me through uh, the summer and into the fall. And when I wrote the last of those stories, then I felt like, okay, I think I want to go write another novel again. It all depends on, on the complexity of the story and, and what I want to achieve. If, 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 if I get a story idea and it seems to me that it's a short story or, or a novella, uh, then, then that's what it is. I don't try to pump it up to novel length. But if I get a, a, a story idea that is you know, obviously of the, the breadth and con, uh, complexity of a novel, then that's what I do, and I don't try to shrink it down to being uh, a short, a piece of short fiction. So it, you know, as I said, I like to do both. I, I really don't have a preference either which way. And I'd be disappointed if I had to only write short fiction or only had to, or could only write novels. Many of your short stories have appeared in print magazines like Asimov's and Analog. Are you still a keen supporter of these magazines, the pr- the print magazines? Oh, yes, I'm, I, absolutely. And not only them, but also fantasy and science fiction. And, and when I can find copies here in the state of Interzone, I've, I've always read the, 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 uh, the print magazine from the, from the very beginning. In fact, I've got a massive collection uh, of, of all of these mags. I've got um, uh, analog and astounding consecutive all the way back to mid-1937 and a, and, a, and a complete run of Asimov's and near complete run of fantasy and science fiction. I I love the magazines. I, I again I would be really dis- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Disappointed. That's actually too mild of a term. Uh, I would be heartbroken if any of those magazines went out of business. Uh, And I also love writing for them. Uh, Even after 22 years, I still get a kick out of seeing my byline in Asimov's or Analog or occasionally in FNSF. Have you ever considered trying online magazines? 
I did once early on when when the online magazines were first getting started. I had a uh, uh, I had a short story appear in one of them. It didn't get to it didn't seem to get very many readers. The main reason, though, I have not really written for the online magazines is because of their ephemeral nature. A story that appears in an online magazine is seems to me to, to exist only so long as that particular issue is currently on on screens, and that seems to last only about a week or so, and then it vanishes in the archives. And unless you actually know it's there and you go go searching for it, it's it's disappeared. It's gone. Whereas something that appears in a print magazine. It's there. It's a tangible object. It, it's there in print. You know, you can go find it decades later. When when I want to read an old story myself, uh, again, I can go into my collection and I can find stories that were published as as long as seventy uh, years ago. And whereas, you know, where can you find a story that was published online? You know, only a few months ago you have to actually go into their archives and dig for it. So this is why I still prefer writing for the print magazines. I know it's there. It exists. Uh, whereas something that is on an online magazine, it might get a little more exposure. It might get a little more readers. But once it's out of sight, I think it's also out of mind. I've read somewhere where you've, you're good at spotting if you're, when you're writing a story, if it's not working or the novel's not working. Has there ever been a time when you've simply had to push on with a bad, not a bad idea, but a bad, a bad feeling about the story just to get it out and get it finished for a publisher? Well, if I, if I, if I get a really bad feeling that a story isn't working out for me, what Hemingway calls, uh, uh, Hemingway called a, a BS detector, then I just stop, or in a way it actually kind of stops itself. And the, the, the story will go into file for a while. Sometimes it can be years uh, before I, I pick it up again. Uh, I had that experience, in fact, this last year when I uh, completed a story called The Zoo Team that had been incomplete for at least five or six years because I couldn't figure out an ending for it. But on the other hand, more to the point of what you were asking, when on occasion, yeah, there's a story that I have, uh, I've, I've written that I've had, I've, that I've been fairly uncomfortable with for at one level or another, but I've pushed through because I knew I had to do that. One of those, for instance, was the days between, uh, which was uh, became part two of my novel Coyote. That was a very hard story for me to write. I really had to dig very, very deep inside of me to pull that thing out. And it was, it was in many ways a very depressing story to write. And gee, every day I, I, when I would sit down and work on it, it felt like I was just pounding sand. You know, some days I'd only get like a page or two written before I had to stop myself. And that one took a very long time to write. When I got through with it, I thought, you know, this is either one of the very best stories I've written or one of the very worst. I don't know. But I sent it off anyway. And it's I've been surprised that 
an, a, a, a reaction that a lot of people consider this to be one of my, my best stories. It, it got nominated for both the Hugo and Nebula Awards and, uh, and, and is one of the, 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 the key stories in the whole Coyote series. Sometimes a writer, I think, is the worst judge of his own work. Would you say your Coyote series is the most successful of your books? Yeah, I think so. I've often said that this is that Coyote is a book that took me ten years to learn how to write. Uh, it was my tenth novel. I had written ten, nine uh, science fiction novels before then. I think those books, were, those previous novels, were really very good. But Coyote was a masterpiece in in the classic sense, in that it was this is the work that I produced that I felt like. It showed that I had mastered my craft. It, it took a very long genesis. And the, the, the funny thing about it was that it was intended to be a standalone work. I, I thought that it was going to, I was going to write this one novel and then I'd go do something else. And what it ended up was being just the first part of, you know, first a trilogy, uh, then a duology, and then three related novels along with the novella and two short stories. I didn't realize that when I started on this thing that it was going to be the beginning of a, of, of a, uh, of a cycle that would take 11 years to write. And from all, given all the responses that I've had from readers and reviewers and so forth, it's, it's the most popular of my work and, 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 and the most accepted. So, yeah, I'm really quite proud of it. Have you a favorite character out of the Coyote series? I think Carlos, Carlos Montero is my favorite. I think in, in, in many ways, uh, he's my doppelganger. He, he's my, my personal self projected into those books. One thing I like about him is that we see through the course of the Coyote series, uh, the story of his life. When we first meet him, he's a young teenager. And when he leaves the stage, uh, he's an old man. And he has this long and eventful life that places him at the center of, of, of Coyote's history. He's not always the main character. If you've read the stories, you see that there's, you know, sometimes some characters fade into the background for a while and other characters come up. But it always seems to come back to Carlos. So, yeah, I'd say he's my favorite. Is there a character from your Coyote books that started off really as a minor player but then developed and had all of a sudden had a much more prominent role in the story? Yeah, there was. Um, Hawk Thompson uh, appears in Coyote Frontier as, as a kid, as a minor character. And uh, and even at the time when I was writing that particular part of the book, I thought that he was going to have sort of this walk-on role, and I'd be done with it. By the time the book ended, he gained a much more prominent role. I did not realize that he was going to become, in the two books that followed that in the series, and Coyote Horizon and Coyote Destiny, that he would become the lead character of these two, that, that he would become the spiritual leader uh, called the Shah's Maha, and that he would, uh, and during uh, Coyote Horizon, he would end up having this, uh, this Hahira, 
this this spiritual journey that would completely you know change him he'd go through these these great changes and so forth and that he would eventually become a key figure in, in the history of this world none of that was anticipated he again he was when when he when he first appears in in the third book in coyote frontier he's a kid he's kind of a smart aleck uh i thought he was just going to be a sort of a a minor character there's a few other people who are like that and this is one of the things that i have enjoyed about writing this series is that sometimes more than sometimes quite often i was surprising myself that things were happening that i had not planned on that i wasn't expecting but gee, this is kind of interesting. Let's let's go with this. Can you tell people who maybe don't know just how you went about writing the Coyote novels? Well, it took, as I said earlier, there was a long genesis behind these books, and I, there were, in fact, two false starts. I knew from the beginning that I wanted to write a novel about the first starship from Earth and and the first interstellar colony because of their complexity. Uh, because of their scope, I wasn't able to write them in the normal linear form that you usually see novels take, you know, chapter one, chapter two, and so forth and so on. But I, I tried it that way, and it, it, it simply didn't work. Because I collect old science fiction magazines and read the stories there, I had been rereading a couple of the classics of the field. One of them was Isaac Asimov's Foundation, and the other were Clifford Simic's City. When they first appeared as a series of stories in astounding science fiction in the 1940s. And reading these, these series, I thought, you know, gosh, that must have been really neat at that time to, to be following this in the magazines and, 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 and get yourself wrapped up in these big epic stories that were appearing one at a time. And then I began thinking, I wonder if you could do this again. So I went to Gardner Desois, who was the, then the editor of Asimov Science Fiction, and approached him with the idea that I, I, I want to write this novel, but I want to do it as a, a, a series of linked stories that will appear in Asimov's, and, and would he be willing to do this? And Gardner said, yeah, sure. So I wrote first Coyote this way, and then when it became apparent to me, that I wasn't going to be able to to, to write everything in, in one volume. I, I left a, a, a sort of an open ending with the last story and then went back to Gardner and said, I'd like to do this again. Gardner said, hey, the stories are popular. We've gotten some award nominations. We've gotten good reader response. Go for it. So I wrote Coyote Rising in that in that same way. Coyote Frontier would have been serialized the same way um, however, Ace wanted to publish Coyote Frontier close after, within a year after Coyote Rising came out, and there was no way that we could run, you know, another eight stories in Asimov Science Fiction before before the book publication came out. So those stories, although again Coyote Frontier appeared in this kind of serial form, or it was written in that way. There was no previous publication. And and after that, with the two uh, volumes that followed that, Coyote Rising and Coyote Destiny, I continued with this kind of mosaic novel approach. 
because it worked well. It allowed me to, you know, use a number of different narrative approaches to be able to have a number of different viewpoint characters and to have this sort of this non-traditional approach to, to doing it that really worked out really very well. Is this now a tried and tested way for you to write a novel? For those novels, yes. For the Coyote book, they worked out pretty, pretty well. I'm, I don't want to do this with every single book that I write, though. And, and I haven't. I mean, Galaxy Blues and Spindrift were told in that traditional narrative style. So is Hex, the next book that I've got coming out. You know, I, I don't think there's going to be another Coyote book after Coyote Destiny. I mean, there could be. You know, in a year or two or five, I may decide that I want to, you know, write another one. And if I do that, then I'll probably use this mosaic novel approach. It is very difficult to write, though. Um, that's, as I say, it took 10 years of previous work to learn how to do this. And it, it is very hard to, to be able to do this type of thing because you're juggling so many balls at once. But I, I'd love to be able to do this again, to take this kind of approach again, if the book is suitable. You've had some very memorable characters in the Coyote series. You know, I'm thinking of Leslie Gillis there and the religious leader, Zoltan. How did you come to invent Zoltan? Zoltan uh, came out of a piece that I read in Harper's Magazine at that time about bioengineering, in which the story centered upon a scientist, a real-life scientist, who had ac actually had designed a way of fitting people, a human being, with bat wings. And he hadn't actually done this, but he had shown how you could take tissue graphs and, and be able to fit a human being with these very large wings that would sprout from his back. And I, I, I read this and I thought, okay, yeah, you could do this, but in God's name, why? What would be the motivation? What would be the purpose? I mean, this this thing is totally mad. And then that sort of hit me. Well, maybe this would be something that a madman. So, I, I mean, it, it's kind of an old cliche of, of the mad scientist. But I decided that would be kind of fun to play with, is the idea of the lunatic bio-researcher or bio-engineer who does this on an unwilling person. And that person, in turn, because of the experience, is driven crazy. And that began to channel into a number of things that I, I sort of held my interest in a while of, of weird religious cults, like the Heaven's Gate cult and so forth. So one thing led to the other. And so I came up with Zoltan Shiro, who is this guy who is, through this horrendous experience, is transformed into a, a living gargoyle. And, uh, and then sees himself as being a prophet of some sort and, and gathers a number of people around him who, who believe that same thing. Through him in that particular story, which is Benjamin the Unbeliever, which is Coyote Rising, I was able to, to write about religious cults. Is there one chapter or one story in the whole of the Coyote series that really stands out for you and is one of your personal favourites? Well, I mentioned uh, uh, The Days Between. That, that's one right there. And Stealing Alabama, the very first one, uh, which is like straight-out thriller. You know, it, it, It's hard, 
I found myself hard-pressed to pick out the stories in particular because, for me, they now comprise this one long narrative. I, I now see those five books practically as being one long novel, one, one long epic. I'll probably never write anything like this again. It took a decade. It was a case where start at one place and, and you keep writing until you run out of story. It's hard for me to separate out individual stories now as, as being favorites, just as it'd be difficult to pull a, you know, a novel by somebody else that I really like and say, oh yeah, chapter 12, I really like that one. Your Coyote series is now in audio format. Is audio format, do you sometimes have to stop and think when you're writing that it's going to be good for the audio, or do you, does that never come into the equation when you're writing a story? I never really do, actually. I, I, I write for uh, readers primarily. The, the, the books have only, you know, fairly recently come out in an audio format. I am surprised and, and grateful that they, they come out sounding so well. This is something that, that came as a real surprise to me, that read aloud, they, they, they sound pretty good. And I've got a, a readership, I guess you could say, or a listenership, who haven't actually read the books uh, on the printed page, primarily listen to them. And they come back, and they're, they're big fans of the series. What's next for Alan Steele? And will your fans be able to listen as well as read the new work? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> the novel that I finished earlier this year is called Hex. It is the, the latest and I think last volume in the Coyote Universe series following Bindrift and uh, Galaxy Blues. It's, again, like Coyote, it's, it's big-time world-building. In this case, I decided to take on the concept of Dyson Spheres. This was one of those ideas that I was thinking about for a long time, and but I didn't want to do it the way other people have done it. So I went back into the original papers uh, that, that Freeman Dyson wrote about Dyson's fears uh, in the early 1960s and saw, somewhat to my surprise, that his concept was a lot different than what was eventually made out of it in, 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 in some very good novels like Bob Shaw's Orbitsville, Ian Banks's culture novels, and, and so forth. And I saw there was some room to do something very different. So Hex is, uh, is the name of a Dyson Sphere, and it doesn't look like other people's Dyson Spheres, and I had a lot of fun writing that one. The novel that I'm currently working on now I, I really rather reluctant to talk about it, but I, I will say that it is my first stab at writing a young adult science fiction novel. I'm hoping that this will be something that once it, I get through with it and once it's published will appeal to teenagers. Alan Steele, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Tony. It's a pleasure. The Emperor of Mars by Alan M. Steele Out there, you have a lot of ways to go crazy. 
get cooped up in a passenger module not much larger than a trailer, and by the time you reach your destination, you may have come to believe that the universe exists only within your own mind. It's called solipsism syndrome, and I've seen it happen a couple of times. Share that same module with five or six guys who don't get along very well, and after three months, you'll be sleeping with a knife taped to your thigh. Pull double shifts during that time, with little chance to relax, and you'll probably suffer from depression. Couple this with vitamin deficiency due to a lousy diet, and you're a candidate for chronic fatigue syndrome. Folks who've never left Earth often think that Titan plague is the main reason people go mad in space. They're wrong. Titan plague may rot your brain and turn you into a homicidal maniac, but instances of it are rare, and there's a dozen other ways to go bonzo that are much more subtle. I've seen guys adopt imaginary friends with whom they have long and meaningless conversations, compulsively clean their hard suits, regardless of whether or not they've recently worn them, or go for a routine spacewalk and have to be begged to come back into the airlock. Some people just aren't cut out for life out there, but there's no way to predict who's going to lose their mind. When something like that happens, I have a set of standard procedures. Ask the doctor to prescribe antidepressants. Keep an eye on them to make sure they don't do anything that might put themselves or others at risk. Relieve them of duty if I can, and see what I can do about getting them back home as soon as possible. Sometimes I don't have to do any of this. A guy goes crazy for a little while, and then he gradually works out whatever it was that got in his head. The next time I see him, he's in the commissary, eating Cheerios like nothing ever happened. Most of the time, though, a mental breakdown is a serious matter. I think I've shipped home about one out of every ten people because of one issue or another. But one time, I saw someone go mad, and it was the best thing that could have happened to him. That was Jeff Halbert. Let me tell you about him. Back in '48, I was general manager of Arja Station, the first and largest of the Mars colonies. This was a year before the formation of Pax Astra, about five years before the colonies declared independence. So the six major Martian settlements were still under control of one Earth-based corporation or another, with Arja Station jointly operated by Skycorp and Uchuhiko. We had about a hundred people living there by then. The majority short-timers on two-year contracts. Only a dozen or so were permanent residents who left Earth for good. Jeff wasn't one of them. Like most people, he'd come to Mars to make a lot of money in a relatively short amount of time: six months from Earth to Mars aboard a cycle ship, two years on the planet, then six more months back to Earth aboard the next ship to make the crossing during the biannual launch window. In three years, a young buck like him could earn enough dough to buy a house, start a business, invest in the stock market, or maybe just loaf for a good long while. In previous times, they would have worked on offshore oil rigs, joined the merchant marine, or built power sets. By mid-century, this kind of high-risk, high-paying work was on Mars, and there was no shortage of guys willing and ready to do it. Jeff Halbert was what we called a Mars monkey. We had a lot of people like him on Arja Station, and they took care of the dirty jobs that the scientists, engineers, and other specialists didn't want to handle themselves. One day they might be operating a bulldozer or crane at a habitat construction site. The next day they'd be unloading freight from a cargo lander that had just touched down. The day after that they'd be cleaning out the air vents or repairing a solar array or unplugging a toilet. It wasn't romantic or particularly interesting work, but it was the sort of stuff that needed to be done in order to keep the base going. And because of that, kids like Jeff were invaluable. And Jeff was definitely a kid in his early twenties, wiry and almost too tall to wear a hard suit. He looked like he'd started shaving only last week. 
Before he dropped out of school to get a job with Skycorp, I don't think he'd traveled more than a few hundred miles from the small town in New Hampshire where he'd grown up. I didn't know him well, but I knew his type. Restless, looking for adventure, hoping to score a small pile of loot so that he could do something else with the rest of his life besides hang out in a pool hall. He probably hadn't even thought much about Mars before he spotted a Skycorp recruitment ad on some website. He had two years of college, though, and met all the fitness requirements, and that was enough to get him into the training program, and eventually a berth aboard a cycle ship. Before Jeff left Earth, he filled out and signed all the usual company paperwork. Among them was Form 36B, Family Emergency Notification Consent. Skycorp required everyone to state whether or not they wanted to be informed of a major illness or death of a family member back home. This was something a lot of people didn't take into consideration before they went to Mars. But nonetheless, it was an issue that had to be addressed. If you found out, for instance, that your father was about to die, there wasn't much you could do about it because you'd be at least 35 million miles from home. The best you could do would be to send a brief message that someone might be able to read to him before he passed away. You wouldn't be able to attend the funeral, and it would be many months, even a year or two, before you could lay roses on his grave. Most people signed Form 36B on the grounds that they'd rather know about something like this than be kept in the dark until they returned home. Jeff did, too, but I'd later learn that he hadn't read it first. For him, it had been just one more piece of paper that needed to be signed before he boarded the shuttle, not to be taken any more seriously than the catastrophic accident disclaimer or the form attesting that he didn't have any sort of venereal disease. He probably wished he hadn't signed that damn form, but he did, and it cost him his sanity. Jeff had been on Mars for only about seven months when a message was relayed from Skycorp's Human Resources office in Huntsville. I knew about it because a copy was cc'd to me. The minute I read it, I dropped what I was doing to head straight for Hab 2 Second Level, which was where the monkey house, that is the dormitory for unspecialized laborers like Jeff, was located. I didn't have to ask which bunk was his. The moment I walked in, I spotted a knot of people standing around a young guy slumped on his bunk, staring in disbelief at the facts in his hands. Until then, I didn't know, nor did anyone at Arja Station, that Jeff had a fiancée back home, a nice girl named Karen, whom he'd met in high school and who had agreed to marry him about the same time he'd sent his application to Skycorp. Once he got the job, they decided to postpone the wedding until he returned, even if it meant having to put their plans on hold for three years. One of the reasons why Jeff decided to get a job on Mars, in fact, was to provide a nest egg for him and Karen. And they'd need it, too. About three weeks before Jeff took off, Karen informed him that she was pregnant and that he'd have a child waiting for him when he got home. He'd kept this a secret, mainly because he knew the company would annul his contract if it learned that he had a baby on the way. Both Jeff's family and Karen's knew all about the baby, though, and they decided to pretend that Jeff was still on Earth, just away on a long business trip. Until he returned, they'd take care of Karen. About three months before the baby was due, the two families decided to host a baby shower. The party was to be held at the home of one of Jeff's uncles. Apparently, he was the only relative with a house big enough for such a get-together. And Karen was on her way there, in a car driven by Jeff's parents, when tragedy struck. Some habitual drunk who'd learned how to disable his car's high-alcohol lockout and therefore was on the road when he shouldn't have been, plowed straight into them. The drunk walked away with no more than a sprained neck, but his victims were nowhere nearly so lucky. Karen, her unborn child, Jeff's mother and father, all died before they reached the hospital. 
There's not a lot you can say to someone who's just lost his family that's going to mean very much. I'm sorry, barely scratches the surface. I understand what you're going through is ridiculous. I know how you feel is insulting, and is there anything I can do to help is pointless unless you have a time machine. If I did, I would have lent it to Jeff so that he could travel back 24 hours to call his folks and beg them to put off picking up Karen by only 15 or 20 minutes. But everyone said these things anyway because there wasn't much else that could be said. And I relieved Jeff of further duties until he felt like he was ready to go to work again because there was little else I could do for him. The next cycle ship wasn't due to reach Mars for another 17 months. By the time he got home, his parents and Karen would be dead for nearly two years. To Jeff's credit, he was back on the job within a few days. Maybe he knew that there was nothing he could do except work, or maybe he just got tired of staring at the walls. In any case, one morning he put on his suit, cycled through the airlock, and went outside to help the rest of the monkeys dig a pit for the new septic tank. But he wasn't the same easygoing kid we'd known before. No wisecracks, no goofing off, not even any gripes about the hours it took to make the damn hole and how he'd better get overtime for this. He was like a robot out there, silently digging at the sandy red ground with a shovel till the pit was finally finished, at which point he dropped his tools and without a word returned to the hab where he climbed out of his suit and went to the mess hall for some chow. A couple of weeks went by, and there was no change. Jeff said little to anyone. He ate, worked, slept, and that was about it. When you looked into his eyes, all you saw was a distant stare. If he'd broken down in hysterics, I would have understood, but there wasn't any of that. It was as if he'd shut down his emotions, suppressing whatever he was feeling inside. The station had a pretty good hospital by then, large enough to serve all the colonies, and Arja General's senior psychologist had begun meeting with Jeff on a regular basis. Three days after Jeff went back to work, Carl Fleischer stopped by my office. His report was grim. Jeff Halbert was suffering from severe depression, to the point that he was barely responding to medication. Although he hadn't spoken of suicide, Dr. Fleischer had little doubt that the notion had occurred to him, and I knew that if Jeff did decide to kill himself, all he'd have to do was wait until the next time he went outside, then shut down his suit's air supply and crack open the helmet faceplate. One deep breath and the Martian atmosphere would do the rest. He'd be dead before anyone could reach him. "'You want my advice?' Carl asked, sitting on the other side of the desk with a glass of moonshine in hand. "'Find something that'll get his mind off what happened.' "'You think that hasn't occurred to me? Believe me, I've tried.' "'Yeah, I know,' he told me. "'But extra work shifts aren't helping, and neither are vids or games.' He was quiet for a moment. "'If I thought sex would help, I'd ask a girl I know to haul him off to bed, but that would just make matters worse.' His fiancée was the only woman he ever loved, and it'll probably be a long time before he sleeps with anyone again. So what do you want me to do? I gave a helpless shrug. Come on, give me a clue here. I want to help the kid, but I'm out of ideas. Well, I looked at the duty roster and saw that you've scheduled a survey mission for next week. Something up north, I believe. Uh-huh. I'm sending a team up there to see if they can locate a new water supply. Oh, and one of the engineers wants to make a side trip to look at an old NASA probe. So put Jeff on the mission, Carl smiled. They're going to need a monkey or two anyway. Maybe travel will do him some good. His suggestion was as good as any, so I pulled up the survey assignment list, deleted the name of one monkey, and inserted Jeff Halbert's instead. I figured it couldn't hurt, and I was right. And also wrong. 
So Jeff was put on a two-week sortie that traveled above the 60th parallel to the Vastitis Borealis, the subarctic region that surrounds the Martian North Pole. The purpose of the mission was to locate a site for a new well. Although most of Arsha Station's water came from atmospheric condensers in our greenhouses, we needed more than they could supply, which was why we drilled artesian wells in the permafrost beneath the northern tundra and pumped groundwater to surface tanks, which in turn would be picked up on a monthly basis. Every few years or so, one of those wells would run dry. When that happened, we'd have to send a team up there to dig a new one. Two airships made the trip, the Sagan and the Collins. Jeff Halbert was aboard the Collins, and according to its captain, who was also the mission leader, he did his job well. Over the course of ten days, the two dirigibles roamed the tundra, stopping every ten or fifteen miles so that crews could get out and conduct test drills that would bring up a sample of what lay beneath the rocky red soil. It wasn't hard work, really, and it gave Jeff a chance to see the northern regions. Yet he was quiet most of the time, rarely saying much to anyone. In fact, he seemed to be bored by the whole thing. The other people on the expedition were aware of what had recently happened to him, of course, and they attempted to draw him out of his shell, but after a while it became obvious that he just didn't want to talk, and so they finally gave up and left him alone. Then on the eleventh day of the mission, two days before the expedition was scheduled to return to Arsha, the Collins located the Phoenix lander. This was a NASA probe that landed back in 08, the first to confirm the presence of subsurface ice on Mars. Unlike many of the other American and European probes that explored Mars before the first manned expeditions, Phoenix didn't have a rover. Instead, it used a robotic arm to dig down into the regolith, scooping up samples that were analyzed by its onboard chemical lab. The probe was active for only a few months before its battery died during the long Martian winter, but it was one of the milestones leading to human colonization. As they expected, the expedition members found Phoenix half-buried between wind-blown sand and dust, with only its upper platform and solar vane still exposed. Nevertheless, the lander was intact, and although it was too big and heavy to be loaded aboard the airship, the crew removed its arm to be taken home and added to the base museum. And they found one more thing, the Mars Library. During the 1900s, while the various Mars missions were still in their planning stages, the Planetary Society had made a proposal to NASA. One of those probes should carry a DVD containing a cache of literature, visual images, and audio recordings pertaining to Mars. The ostensive purpose would be to furnish future colonists with a library for their entertainment, but the unspoken reason was to pay tribute to the generations of writers, artists, and filmmakers whose works had inspired the real-life exploration of Mars. NASA went along with those proposals, so a custom-designed DVD made of silica glass to ensure its long-term survival was prepared for inclusion on a future mission. A panel selected 84 novels, short stories, articles, and speeches, with the authors ranging from 18th-century fantasists like Swift and Voltaire to 20th-century science fiction authors like Niven and Benford. A digital gallery of 60 visual images, including everything from paintings by Bonstell, M. Schweiler, and Raylan, to a lobby card from a Flash Gordon serial, and a cover of a weird science comic book was chosen as well. The final touch were four audio clips, the most notable of which were the infamous 1938 radio broadcast of The War of the Worlds, and a discussion of the same between H.G. Wells and Orson Wells. Now called Visions of Mars, the disk was originally placed aboard NASA's Mars Polar Lander, but that probe was destroyed when its booster failed shortly after launch and it crashed in the Atlantic. So an identical copy was put on Phoenix, and this time it succeeded in getting to Mars. And so the disk had remained in the Vastitis Borealis for the last 40 years, 
awaiting the day when a human hand would remove it from its place in Phoenix's upper fuselage. And that hand happened to be Jeff Halbert's. The funny thing is, no one on the expedition knew the disc was there. It had been forgotten by then, its existence buried deep within the old NASA documents I'd been sent from Earth, so I hadn't told anyone to retrieve it. And besides, most of the guys on the Collins were more interested in taking a look at the antique lander than the DVD that happened to be attached to it, so when Jeff found the disc and detached it from Phoenix, it wasn't like he'd made a major find. The attitude of almost everyone on the mission was, oh yeah, that's kind of neat, take it home and we'll see what's on it which was easier said than done. DVD drives had been obsolete for more than 20 years. The nearest flea market where one might find an old computer that had one was, well, it wasn't on Mars. But Jeff looked around, and eventually he found a couple of dead comps stashed in a storage closet. Salvage left over from the first expeditions. Neither were usable on their own, but with the aid of a service manual, he was able to swap out enough parts to get one of them up and running. And once it was operational... He removed the disc from its scratched case and gently slid it into the slot. Once he was sure the data was intact and hadn't decayed, he downloaded everything onto his personal pad, and then, at random, he selected one of the items on the menu, The Martian Way by Isaac Asimov, and he began to read. Why did Jeff go to so much trouble? Perhaps he wanted something to do with his free time besides mourn for the dead, or maybe he wanted to show the others who'd been on the expedition that they shouldn't have ignored the disc. I don't know for sure, so I can't tell you. All I know is that the disc first interested him, then intrigued him, and finally obsessed him. It took a while for me to become aware of the change in Jeff. As much as I was concerned for him, he was one of my lesser problems. As a general manager, on any given day, I had a dozen or more different matters that needed my attention, whether it be making sure that the air recycling system was repaired before we suffocated to death, or filling out another stack of forms sent from Huntsville. So Jeff wasn't always on my mind. When I didn't hear from Dr. Fleischer for a while, I figured that the two of them had managed to work out his issues and turn to other things. Still, there were warning signs. Stuff that I noticed, but to which I didn't pay much attention. Like the day I was monitoring the radio crosstalk from the monkeys laying sewage pipes in the foundation of Hab 3, and happened to hear Jeff identify himself as Lieutenant Gulliver Jones. The monkeys sometimes screwed around like that on the comm channels, and the foreman told Halbert to knock it off and use his proper call sign. But when Jeff answered him, his response was weird. Aye, sir. I was simply ruminating on the rather peculiar environment in which we found ourselves. He even faked a British accent to match the Victorian diction. That got a laugh from the other monkeys, but nevertheless I wondered who Gulliver Jones was and why Jeff was pretending to be him. There was also the time Jeff was out on a dozer, clearing away the sand that had been deposited on the landing field during a dust storm a couple of days earlier, another routine job to which I hadn't been paying much attention until the shift supervisor at the command center paged me. Chief, there's something going on with Halpert. You might want to listen in. So I tapped into the comm link, and there was Jeff. Affirmative, main comm. I just saw something move out there, about a half a click north of the periphery. Roger that, Tiger 4-0, the supervisor said. Can you describe it again, please? A pause. A big creature, about ten feet tall, with eight legs, and there was a woman riding it, red-skinned and... An abrupt laugh. Stark naked, well, just about... Something tugged at my memory, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. 
When the chef's supervisor spoke again, his voice had a patronizing undertone. Yeah, uh, right, Tiger 4-0. -oh. We just checked the LRC, though, and there is nothing on the scope except you. They're gone now, went behind a boulder and vanished. Another laugh, almost gleeful. But they were out there, I promise. Affirmative, 4-0. -oh. A brief pause. If you happen to see any more thoughts, let us know, okay? That's when I remembered. What Jeff had described was a beast from Edgar Rice Burroughs's Mars novels, and the woman writing it? That could only have been Deja Thoras. Almost everyone who came to Mars read Burroughs at one point or another, but this was the first time I'd ever heard of anyone claiming to have seen the Princess of Helium. Obviously, Jeff had taken to playing practical jokes. I made a mental note to say something to him about that, but then forgot about it. As I said, on any given day, I handled any number of different crises, and someone messing with his supervisor's head ranked low on my priority list. But that wasn't the end of it. In fact, it was only the beginning. A couple of weeks later, I received a memo from the quartermaster. Someone had tendered a request to be transferred to private quarters, even though that was above his pay grade. At Arja in those days, before we got all the Habs built, individual rooms were at a premium and were generally reserved for management, senior researchers, married couples, company stooges, and so forth. In this case, though, the other guys in this particular person's dorm had signed a petition backing his request, and the quartermaster himself wrote that, for the sake of morale, he was recommending that this individual be assigned his own room. I wasn't surprised to see that Jeff Halbert was the person making the request. By then I'd noticed that his personality had undergone a distinct change. He'd let his hair grow long, eschewing the high and tight style preferred by people who spent a lot of time wearing a hard-suit helmet. He rarely shared a table with anyone else in the wardroom, and instead ate by himself, staring at his data pad the entire time. And he was now talking to himself on the comlink. No one reports of Martian princesses riding eight-legged animals, but rather a snatch of this... The Martians seem to have calculated their descent with amazing subtlety, or a bit of that. The Martians gazed back up at them for a long, long, silent time from the rippling water, which most people wouldn't have recognized as being quotes from Wells or Bradbury. So it was no wonder that the other Monkey House residents wanted to get rid of him. Before I signed the request, though, I paid Dr. Fleischer a visit. The station psychologist didn't have to ask why I was there. He asked me to shut the door. Then let me know what he thought about Jeff. To tell the truth, he began, I can't tell if he's getting better or worse. I can. Look, I'm no shrink, but if you ask me, he's getting worse. Kyle shook his head. Not necessarily. Sure, his behavior is bizarre, but at least we no longer have to worry about suicide. In fact, he's one of the happiest people we have here. He rarely speaks about his loss anymore, and when I remind him that his wife and parents are dead, he shrugs it off as if this was something that happened a long time ago. In his own way... He's quite content with life. And don't you think that's strange? Sure I do. Especially since he's admitted to me that he'd stop taking the antidepressants I prescribed to him. And that's the bad news. Perhaps he isn't depressed anymore, or at least by clinical standards. But he's becoming delusional, to the point of actually having hallucinations. I stared at him. You mean the time he claimed he spotted Deja Thoris? You're saying he actually saw that? Yes, I believe so. And that gives me a clue as to what's going on in his mind. Carl picked up a penknife, absently playing with it. 
Ever since he found that disc, he's become utterly obsessed with it. So I asked him if he'd let me copy it from his pad, which he did, and after I asked him what he was reading, I checked it out for myself. And what I discovered was that of all the novels and stories that are on the discs, the ones that attract him the most are also the ones that are least representative of reality. That is, the stuff that's about Mars, but not as we know it. Come again? I shook my head. I don't understand. How much science fiction have you read? A little, not much. Well, lucky for you, I've read quite a bit, he grinned. In fact, you could say that's why I'm here. I got hooked on that stuff when I was a kid, and by the time I got out of college, I'd pretty much decided I wanted to see Mars. He became serious again. Okay, try to follow me. Although people have been writing about Mars since the 1700s, it wasn't until the first Russian and American probes got out here in the 1960s that anyone knew what this place was really like. The absence of knowledge gave writers and artists the liberty to fill in the gap with their imaginations, or at least until they learned better. Understand? Sure, I shrugged. Before the 1960s, you could have Martians. After that, you couldn't have Martians anymore. Um, well, not exactly. Carl lifted his hand, teetered it back and forth. One of the best stories on the disc is A Rose for Ecclesiastes by Roger Zelazny. It was written in 1963, and it has Martians in it. And some stories written before then were pretty close to getting it right. But for the most part, yes. The fictional view of Mars changed dramatically in the second half of the last century, and although it became more realistic, it also lost much of its romanticism. Carl folded the penknife, dropped it on his desk. Those aren't the stories Jeff's reading. Greg Bear's A Martian Recorso, Arthur C. Clarke's Transit of Earth, John Varley's In the Hall of the Martian Kings, anything similar to the Mars we know, he ignores. Why? Because they remind him of where he is, and that's not where he wants to be. So, I thought about it for a moment. He's reading the older stuff instead? Right. Carl nodded. Stanley Weinbaum's A Martian Odyssey, Otis Albert Klein's The Swordsman of Mars, A.E. Van Vogt's The Enchanted Village. The more unreal, the more he likes them, because those stories aren't about the drab, lifeless planet where he's stuck, but instead a planet of native Martians, lost cities, canal systems. Okay, I get it. No, I don't think you do, because I'm not sure I do either, except to say that Jeff appears to be leaving us. Every day he's taking one more step into this other world, and I don't think he's coming back again. I stared at him, not quite believing what I'd just heard. Jeez, Carl. What am I going to do? What can you do? He leaned back in his chair. Not much, really. Look, I'll be straight with you. This is beyond me. He needs the kind of treatment that I can't give him. For that, he's going to have to wait until he gets back to Earth. The next ship isn't due for another 14 months or so. I know. That's when I'm scheduled to go back, too. But the good news is that he's happy and reasonably content and doesn't really pose a threat to anyone, except maybe by accident, in which case I'd recommend that you relieve him of any duties that would take him outside the hab. Done. The last thing anyone needed was to have a delusional person out on the surface. Mars can be pretty unforgiving when it comes to human error, and a fatal mistake can cost you not only your own life, but also the guy next to you. And I take it that you recommend his request be granted, too? It wouldn't hurt. No. A wry smile. So long as he's off in his own world, he'll be happy. Make him comfortable. Give him whatever he wants, within reason at least, and leave him alone. I'll keep an eye on him, and I'll let you know if his condition changes for better or worse. Hopefully for the better. Sure, but I wouldn't count on it. 
Carl stared straight at me. Face it, Chief. One of your guys is turning into a Martian. I took Jeff off the outside work details and let it be known that he wasn't permitted to go Mars walking without authorization or an escort, and instead reassigned him to jobs that would keep him in the habitats, working in the greenhouse, finishing the interior of Hab 2, that sort of thing. I was prepared to tell him that he was being taken off the outside details because he'd reached his REM limit for radiation exposure, but he never questioned my decision, but only accepted it with the same quiet, spooky smile that he'd come to giving everyone. I also let him relocate to private quarters, a small room on Hab 2 second level that had been unoccupied until then. As I expected, there were a few gripes from those still having to share a room with someone else. However, most people realized that Jeff was in bad shape and needed his privacy. After he moved in, though, he did something I didn't anticipate. He changed his door lock's password to something no one else knew. That was against station rules. The security office and the general manager were supposed to always have everyone's lock codes, but Carl assured me that Jeff meant no harm. He simply didn't want to have anyone enter his quarters, and it would help his peace of mind if he received this one small exemption. I went along with it, albeit reluctantly. After that, I had no problems with Jeff for a while. He assumed his new duties without complaint, and the reports I received from department heads told me that he was doing his work well. Carl updated me every week. His patient hadn't yet shown any indications of snapping out of his fugue, but neither did he appear to be getting worse. And although he was no longer interacting with any other personnel except when he needed to, at least he was no longer telling anyone about Martian princesses or randomly quoting obscure science fiction stories over the calm link. Nevertheless, there was the occasional incident, such as when the supply chief came to me with an unusual request Jeff had made, several reams of hemp paper and as much soy ink as could be spared, since both were byproducts of greenhouse crops grown at either Arsha Station or one of the other colonies, and thus not imported from Earth, they weren't particularly scarce. Still, what could Jeff possibly want with that much writing material? I asked Carl if Jeff had told him that he was keeping a journal, the doctor told me that he hadn't, but unless either paper or ink were in short supply, it couldn't hurt to grant that request. So I signed off on this as well, although I told the supply chief to subtract the cost from Jeff's salary. Not long after that, I heard from one of the communications officers. Jeff had asked her to send a general memo to the other colonies, a request for downloads of any Mars novels or stories that their personnel might have. The works of Bradbury, Burroughs, and Brackett were particularly desired, although stuff by Moorcock, Williamson, and Sturgeon would also be appreciated. In exchange, Jeff would send stories and novels he'd downloaded from the Phoenix Disc. Nothing wrong there, either. By then, Mars was on the opposite side of the sun from Earth, so Jeff couldn't make the same request from Huntsville. If he was running out of reading material, then it made sense he'd have to go begging from the other colonies. In fact, the comm officer told me she'd already received more than a half a dozen downloads. Apparently, quite a few folks had Mars fiction stashed in the comms. Nevertheless, it was unusual enough that she thought I should know about it. I asked her to keep me posted and shrugged it off as just another of a long series of eccentricities. A few weeks after that, though, Jeff finally did something that rubbed me the wrong way. As usual, I heard about it from Dr. Fleischer. Jeff has a new request, he said, when I happened to drop by his office. In the future, he would prefer to be addressed as Your Majesty or Your Highness, in keeping with his position as the Emperor of Mars. I stared at him for several seconds. Surely you're joking, I said at last. Surely I'm not, 
He is now the Emperor Geoffrey I, sovereign monarch of the Great Martian Empire, warlord and protector of the Red Planet. A pause, during which I expected Carl to grin and wink. He didn't. He doesn't necessarily want anyone to bow in his presence, he added, but he does require proper respect for the crown. I see. I closed my eyes, rubbed the bridge of my nose between my thumb and forefinger and counted to ten. And what does that make me? Prime Minister, of course, the driest of smiles. Since his title is hereditary, His Majesty isn't interested in the day-to-day -day affairs of his empire. That he leaves up to you, with the promise that he'll refrain from meddling with your decisions. Oh, how fortunate I am. Yes, but from here on, all matters pertaining to the throne should be taken up with me in my position as royal physician and senior court adviser. Aha. Uh -huh. I stood up from my chair. Well, if you'll excuse me, I think the Prime Minister needs to go now and kick His Majesty's ass. Sit down, Carl glared at me. Really, I mean it. Sit. I was unwilling to sit down again, but neither did I storm out of his office. Look, I know he's a sick man, but this has gone far enough. I've given him his own room, relieved him of hard labor, given him paper and ink, and for what? I still don't know, but he keeps asking for more. And I've allowed him calm access to the other colonies. Just because he's being treated like a king doesn't mean he is a king. Oh, I agree, which is why I've reminded him that his title is honorary, as well as hereditary, and as such, there's a limit to royal privilege. And he understands this. After all, the empire is in decline, having reached its peak over a thousand years ago, and since then the emperor has had to accept certain sacrifices for the good of the people. So, no, you won't see him wearing a crown and carrying a scepter, nor will he be demanding that a throne be built for him. He wants his reign to be benign. Hearing this, I reluctantly took my seat again. All right, so let me get this straight. He believes that he's now a king, an emperor, there's a difference. King, emperor, whatever. He's not going to be bossing anyone around, but will pretty much let things continue as they are, right? Except that he wants to be addressed formally. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Carl sighed, shook his head. Let me try to explain. Jeff has come face to face with a reality that he cannot bear. His parents, his fiancée, the child they wanted to have, they're all dead, and he was too far away to prevent it or even go to the funerals. This is a very harsh reality that he needs to keep at bay. So he's built a wall around himself, a wall of delusion, if you will. At first it took the form of an obsession with fantasy. But when that wouldn't alone suffice, he decided to enter that fantasy, become part of it. This is where Emperor Geoffrey I of the Great Martian Empire comes in. So he's protecting himself. Yes, by creating a role that gives him the illusion of control over his own life. Carl shook his head. He doesn't want to actually run Arja, chief. He just wants to pretend that he does. As long as you allow him this illusion, he'll be all right. Trust me. Well, all right. Not that I had much choice in the matter. If I was going to have a crazy person in my colony, at least I could make sure that he wouldn't endanger anyone. If that meant indulging him until he could be sent back to Earth, then that was what I'd have to do. I'll pass the word that His Majesty is to be treated with all due respect. That'll be great. Thanks, Carl smiled. You know, people have been pretty supportive. I haven't heard of anyone taunting him. 
You know how it is. People here tend to look out for each other. They have to. I stood up and started to head for the door when another thought occurred to me. Just one thing. Has he ever told you what he's doing in his room? Like I said, he's been using a lot of paper and ink. Yes, I've noticed the ink stains on his fingers. Kyle shook his head. No, I don't. I've asked him about that, and the only thing he's told me is that he's preparing a gift for his people, that he'll allow us to see it when the time comes. A gift? I raised an eyebrow. Any idea what it is? Not a clue, but I'm sure we'll find out. I kept my promise to Dr. Fleischer and put out the word that Jeff Halbert was heretofore to be known as His Majesty the Emperor. As I told Carl, people were generally accepting of this. Oh, I heard the occasional report of someone giving Jeff some crap about this. Exaggerated bows and corridors, ill-considered questions about who was going to be his queen, and so forth. But the jokers who did this were usually pulled aside and told to shut up. Everyone at Arsha knew that Jeff was mentally ill and that the best anyone could do for him was to let him have his fantasy life for as long as he was with us. By then, Earth was no longer on the other side of the sun. Once our homeworld and Mars began moving toward conjunction, a cycle ship would begin the trip home. So only a few months remained until Jeff would board a shuttle. Since Carl would be returning as well, I figured he'd be in good hands, or at least until they climbed into zombie tanks to hibernate for the long ride to Earth. Until then... All we had to do was keep His Majesty happy. That wasn't hard to do. In fact, Carl and I had a lot of help. Once people got used to the idea that a make-believe emperor lived among them, most of them actually seemed to enjoy the pretense. When he walked through the Habs, people would pause whatever they were doing to nod to him and say, Your Majesty or Your Highness. He was always allowed to go to the front of the serving line in the mess hall, and there was always someone ready to hold his chair for him. And I noticed that he even picked up a couple of consorts. Two unattached young women who did everything from trim his hair, it had grown very long by then with a regal beard to match, to assist him in the Royal Gardens, a.k.a. the Greenhouse, to accompany him to the Saturday night flicks. As one of the girls told me, the Emperor was the perfect date, always the gentleman. He'd unfailingly treated them with respect and never tried to take advantage of them, which was more than could be said for some of the single men in Arja. After a while, I relaxed the rule about not letting him leave the Habs and allowed him to go outside as long as he was under escort at all times. Jeff remembered how to put on a hard suit, a sign that he hadn't completely lost touch with reality, and he never gave any indication that he was on the verge of opening his helmet. But once he walked a few dozen yards from the airlock, he'd often stop and stare into the distance for a very long time, keeping his back to the rest of the base and saying nothing to anyone. I wondered what he was seeing then. Was it a dry red desert, cold and lifeless, with rocks and boulders strewn across an arid plain beneath a pink sky? Or did he see something no one else could? Forests of giant lichen, ancient canals upon which sailing vessels slowly glided, cities as old as time from which John Carter and Tars Tarkas rode on their next adventure, or where evil tyrants called for the head of the outlaw, Eric John Stark. Or was he thinking of something else entirely? A mother and father who'd raised him. A woman he'd once loved. A child whom he'd never see? I don't know, for the emperor seldom spoke to me, even in my role as his prime minister. I think I was someone he wanted to avoid, an authority figure who had the power to shatter his illusions. Indeed, in all the time that Jeff was with us, I don't think he and I said more than a few words to each other. In fact, it wasn't until the day he finally left for Earth that he said anything of consequence to me. 
That morning, I drove him and Dr. Flasher out to the landing field where a shuttle was waiting to transport them up to the cycle ship. Jeff was unusually quiet. I couldn't easily see his expression through his helmet faceplate, but the few glimpses I had told me he wasn't happy. His Majesty knew that he was leaving his empire. Carl hadn't softened the blow by telling him a convenient lie, but instead had given him the truth. They were returning to Earth, and he'd probably never see Mars again. Their belongings had already been loaded aboard the shuttle when we arrived, and the handful of other passengers were waiting to climb aboard. I parked the rover at the edge of the landing field and escorted Jeff and Carl to the spacecraft. I shook hands with Carl and wished him well, then turned to Jeff. "'Your Majesty,' I began. "'You don't have to call me that,' he said. "'Pardon me?' Jeff stepped closer to me. "'I know I'm not really an emperor. "'That was something I got over a while ago. "'I just didn't want to tell anyone.' I glanced at Carl. His eyes were wide, and within his helmet he shook his head. This was news to him, too. Then, you know who you really are? A brief flicker of a smile. I'm Jeff Halbert. There's something wrong with me, and I don't really know what it is, but I know that I'm Jeff Halbert, and that I'm going home. He hesitated, then went on. I know we haven't talked much, but I... Well, Dr. Fleischer has told me what you've done for me, and I just wanted to thank you for putting up with me all this time and for letting me be the Emperor of Mars. I hope I haven't been too much trouble. I slowly let out my breath. My first thought was that he'd been playing me and everyone else for fools, but then I realized that his megalomania had probably been real, at least for a time. In any case, it didn't matter now. He was on his way back to Earth, the first steps on the long road to recovery. Indeed, many months later, I received a letter from Carl, Shortly after he returned to Earth, Jeff was admitted to a private clinic in southern Vermont where he began a program of psychiatric treatment. The process had been painful. As Carl had deduced, his subconscious mind had repressed the knowledge of his family's deaths, papering over the memory with fantastical delusions he'd derived from the stories he'd been reading. The clinic psychologists agreed with Dr. Fleischer. It was probably the retreat into fantasy that saved Jeff's life by providing him with a place to which he was able to escape when his mind was no longer able to cope with the tragic reality. And in the end, when he no longer needed that illusion, Jeff returned from madness. He'd never see a Martian princess again or believe himself to be the ruling monarch of the Red Planet. But that was yet to come. I bit my tongue and offered my hand. No trouble, Jeff. I just hope everything works out for you. Thanks. Jeff shook my hand, then turned away to follow Carl to the ladder. Then he stopped and looked back at me again. One more thing. Yes. There's something in my room I think you'd like to see. I disabled the lock just before I left, so you won't need the password to get in there. A brief pause. It was Thuvia, just in case you need it anyway. Thank you. I peered at him. So, what is it? Call it a gift from the Emperor he said. I walked back to the rover and waited until the shuttle lifted off. Then I drove to Hab 2. When I reached Jeff's room, though, I discovered I wasn't the first person to arrive. Several of his friends, his fellow monkeys, the Emperor's consorts, a couple of others, had already opened the door and gone in. I heard their astonished murmurs as I walked down the hall, but it wasn't until I entered the room that I saw what amazed them. Jeff's quarters were small, but he'd done a lot with it over the last year and a half. The wall above his bed was covered with sheets of paper that he taped together, upon which he'd drawn an elaborate mural. 
Here was the Mars over which the Emperor had reigned. Bolt-like aircraft hovering above great domed cities, monstrous creatures prowling red wastelands, bare-chested heroes defending beautiful women with rapiers and radium pistols, all beneath twin moons that looked nothing like the Phobos and Deimos we knew. The mural was crude, yet it had been rendered with painstaking care and was nothing like anything we'd ever seen before. That wasn't all. On the desk next to the comp was the original Phoenix disc, yet Jeff hadn't been satisfied just to leave it behind. A wire-frame bookcase had been built beside the desk, and neatly stacked upon its shelves were dozens of sheaves of paper, some thick, some thin, each carefully bound with hemp twine, books, handwritten and handmade. I carefully pulled down one at random, gazed at its title page. Edison's Conquest of Mars by Garrett P. Service. I put it back on the shelf, picked up another. Omnilingual by H. Beam Piper. I placed it on the shelf, then pulled down yet another. The Martian Crown Jewels by Paul Anderson. And more. Dozens more. This is what Jeff had been doing all this time. Transcribing the contents of the Phoenix disc word by word, because he knew, despite his madness, that he couldn't stay on Mars forever, and he wanted to leave something behind a library, so that others could enjoy the same stories that had helped him through a dark and troubled time. And the library is still there. In fact, we've improved it quite a bit. I had the bed and dresser removed and replaced them with armchairs and reading lamps. The mural has been preserved within glass frames, and the books have been rebound inside plastic covers. The Phoenix disc is gone, but its contents have been downloaded into a couple of comps. The disc itself is in the base museum. And we've added quite a few books to the shelves. Every time a cycle ship arrives from Earth, it brings a few more for our collection. It's become one of the favorite places in Arsha for people to relax. There's almost always someone in there, sitting in a chair with a novel or story in his or her lap. A sign on the door reads, Imperial Martian Library. That's it. That is Aurel's Light, show 168. Like I say, a few days before Christmas. I hope everyone has a, a lovely Christmas holidays. You know, again, whatever religion, do you know what I mean? You might not even be celebrating Christmas, but I hope you listen to Starships over. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's been a fantastic year, this, you know, and it's only going to get better. Listen out next week for the Meta Show. There's not going to be any really... And there's not going to be anything. It's going to be me waffling on, do you know what I mean? So I hope you have a listen to that as well. Don't forget the email list. Pop over there to the email list. It's on the front of the website as well. Sign up there, put your email in, and you will get a free copy of the Captain's Logs PDF downloaded straight away. I can't say it better than that. Don't forget Twitter and Facebook. I'm there. Until next week. Just like to say, have a very Merry Christmas, and I will catch you at the other side of it. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Story so Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.